Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. You've probably heard this word floating around in society called imposter syndrome. I guess that's actually a phrase, not a word, but you get the idea. And it's this idea that you are a fraud or you feel like you are a fraud and you're going to be found out. Well, this has been so popular in media and in people talking about it that I wanted to have an expert come on and explain to us what is imposter syndrome. And if we have it, what can we do to overcome it? What can we do to actually stop feeling like we're an imposter and own our worth and our value? Today, I have Dr. Tara Halliday, who is an expert in imposter syndrome and has a number one best-selling book on Amazon called Unmasking, The Coach's Guide to Imposter Syndrome, which she wrote to help people who are working with others, such as managers or bosses at work or coaches or counselors or any type of helping professional who may be working with someone who is going through imposter syndrome and how to help them break free from that. Imposter syndrome is an incredibly common phenomenon in high pressure situations and especially among high achievers. But this isn't for people who are just in the workplace. This can also be for the mom, the dad, the person in a relationship that feels like they are not good enough. So today we're going to talk about how to overcome that so you can own your true worth. Let's dive in. There's a process to falling in love and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. I am here today with Dr. Tara Holliday, and we are going to be discussing quite the topic that has been really on the top of everyone's minds and tongues and TikTok videos and Instagram reels and articles. I've been seeing this everywhere, and that's the topic of imposter syndrome. And she has actually written a book about it, done work in it, and so excited to have this conversation about what imposter syndrome is and what we can do about it if this is something we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Halliday. Thank you very much, Kimberly. I'm delighted to be here and sharing this with your audience. Yes. Well, let's first start in, what is imposter syndrome? Because I know when I first heard the word the or the phrase imposter syndrome, the word imposter that's what's that's where I was like, ah, I don't know if I would identify with the word imposter. But then when I heard the definition, I thought, no, maybe that does sound like me. So tell us a little bit more about what it is and why it's called that. Yeah, so imposter syndrome is the secret feeling of being a fraud when you're not, mm-hmm. and the fear of being found out. And that leads to self doubt, it feels like you don't belong, it feels like you're never quite good enough. And um, 
the whole point of this is not that you are an actual fraud. It's not like you're lying on your resume and, and, and pretending to be someone you're not. It's more like you feel like your success and what you do and what you've achieved isn't really your own. Maybe it was luck or good timing or just some somebody else not down to you. So it's kind of the disconnect with your greatness, I suppose, your 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 talent and your your abilities. Mm. I believe I I believe I have felt this way and probably still feel this way in several areas, but specifically the the situation in my life that comes to mind is when I became the CEO of the company I'm CEO of now, which is called Marriage Helper. I, it was previously run and the previous CEO was my father. And so I remember when I stepped into that role, I had no desire for people to know I was related to him because my fear was people are going to think this was handed to me, just given to me and that I am not worthy of it or didn't own it. And so I actually never called him dad at work. I would only call him, you know, Dr. Joe. I wouldn't let the audience that we worked with know that he was my father. That's changed over the years. I finally got to the point where I said, I, you know, this is ridiculous. Part of the power of the story is the fact that we're related, but I totally understand that. What are some other ways that it might show up in someone's life, either at work or in, you know, in their work as a dad or a mom or it kind of in day-to-day -day life? Yeah, so it's that it's that feeling that you're not quite good enough that shows up in several ways. So um, you might notice that you're deflecting praise, right? So somebody says something nice to you, say, oh, no, <laughs> it wasn't me. Or you might hide your opinions, not speak up quite enough. Or uh, just in your job, you might avoid the next promotion because you don't think that you can do the job, even though part of you knows that you can. So it, it really is this, this disconnect between, you know, you, logically, intellectually, you know that you're capable and competent of doing this, but internally you're feeling like not quite, you can't quite do it. You're not really quite good enough. You've got this suspicion that people are going to find you out. It leads to people being perfectionist. It leads to people comparing um, how they feel on the inside to how everybody else is looking on the outside, how successful they're looking. Um, it leads to people over-preparing, overworking, and, and pushing through because it creates an awful lot of internal stress. So there's a few ways that you might recognize those different behaviors. Have you noticed that there may be a certain type of people, whether it may be a personality type or any other way you would want to classify that, who don't struggle with imposter syndrome as much as other people? And I guess the flip side of that question are, have you identified that there's certain types of people based on personality or whatever that are more likely, more prone to struggling with this? Great question. So um, the research has, been, has shown that over 70% of successful people experience imposter syndrome at some point in their career. And uh, there's been other research. In fact, there was nearly 20 years of research to try and find out if there was a personality type, you know, because if we could identify it, then that'll, that would help everything. The conclusion was there is no personality type. 
And the people that it affects tend to be people who are more identified with their role. So, you know, if your identity, who you are, who you feel yourself to be, is tied up with what you do, then that imposter syndrome can... So it's your worth and your actions. Most people put the two together. And imposter syndrome is is that, is thinking that, you know, your worth depends on what you do. And that belief actually affects a lot more people. 99.999% of people have that belief. Um, but it shows up as imposter syndrome the more successful you get. Interesting. Interesting. I can definitely see that. I... I feel like a question that some listeners are going to have after hearing what you just said. Are you familiar with the Enneagram? I have come across the Enneagram. Yes. I'm not in no means an expert, but yes. Me neither. It is not my favorite type of assessment by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) However, but there are lots of people who I mean, they are married to this Enneagram. They love it and they view everything Mm -hmm. through. And there's one type of it that's called the achiever. And Mm -hmm. in that type, it's this, you know, this role or this person who they, they already feel like what you just said, that their worth is tied to their actions. So they need to always be performing or achieving in order to feel like they have self-worth. So clearly, like you and I don't really know that much about the Enneagram. So I'm going to ask, one question, but then I really want to know the answer to another question. So one question would be, so do you see that this would, that this is not just true for people who would be a quote unquote type three on the Enneagram? I'm going to assume your answer to that's going to be absolutely this can apply to any, any person. Um, And so then my next question is going to be like, how, how do you break that? Because that very much is me. I know based on my based on a lot of things with me, my disc profile, my personality type, just how I'm wired. I'm more Mm. driven to want to perform. I'm more driven to want to get things done. And I can't really imagine people who aren't. So help us understand how do we identify how to separate those two things? And what does it look like to, what is the healthy version of imposter syndrome? How would you know you've worked through it? Right. Great. Great couple of questions. Okay. So um, you can have imposter syndrome around anything that you do. So it's easiest to see in people who are, you know, in very successful roles like yourself, CEO of a company. And because there is such a big disconnect between you know, your obvious success, you know, you tell anywhere, anyone, oh, I'm feeling this self-doubt. They'll like, go, what, Kimberly? No way. You're so successful. You, you, you get that big gap. But it also shows up in being a parent, you know. Um, I will feel like a bad mother, a bad father if I do this or don't do that. Well, that's the same thing. That's connecting your worth with your actions, with what you do. And then the result of that is it creates this tremendous sense of stress. It creates this, um, it's almost like a rejection of yourself, self-criticism, self-doubt. So the flip side of that is when you let go of that, when you, when you change that belief, which it, it, it's what it is, a belief between your worth and your actions, then you've got 
you experience this deep level of self-acceptance, which means that you'll forgive yourself for making mistakes, which means that you're not going to lose sleep and you're not going to lose stress about things that you can't control. It means that when people are emotionally reactive around you, you don't react back. You, you know, you act with kindness and compassion because you automatically extend that self-acceptance to accepting other people as well. So the way it feels is light, calm, energized, peaceful, and, and a really deep sense that you belong. Hmm. I'm taking, I'm taking notes as you're, as you're saying all this and just thinking through it, it really seems like there's a huge part of this, which is aligned with getting a little bit more introspective and understanding what, so one of the things I wrote down that you just said is there's a rejection or self self criticism and doubt, right? Those are some of the symptoms someone could feel. It can lead to perfectionism. It can lead to all of that. So, is there is there a point where someone needs to create space and carve out time in their life to actually reflect on why am I such a perfectionist? Why do I doubt myself so much? Is that what can lead to the healing that allows them to break free from this and not have to stay stuck in this cycle or or what is it? I mean, how do people break free from this in order to get those items that, that you mentioned? Yeah. So it really is changing a belief, that belief that your worth and your actions are the same. And um, that is, you know, to change a belief, it, belief is just your model of the world. It's like how your brain is interpreting the world. So there, there's processes that you can do to change that belief. And this is the work that I do with my clients is to change that underlying belief. Um, so you don't really need to look for the cause. So if I can go a little bit more in detail here, where imposter syndrome develops in people is actually as a very young child, this belief in our worth being conditional. So between the ages of zero and 18 months old, um, Children don't have a sense of separation of themselves. Like their, their, their bodies are learning to separate who, you know, their physical body from their physical surroundings and are learning to identify themselves. By the time they get between 18 months and, and three years old, they, they, they recognize that there is a separation, that they are a separate being, a separate person. Now, in, up to 18 months old, their worth, right? Their, 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 it, although they can't even think of it like that, but their worth and their actions, they are the, they are the same. You know, you do something good, you're a good girl. You do something bad, you're a bad girl. <laughs> that's, and, and that's kind of the very, very childlike way. And the vast majority of people don't get taught the separation of those at the same time that they learn they're a separate person. So this is where it all comes from. And that is a, a belief. It's a way of interpreting the world that effectively never got taught in, in the vast majority of people. And this is why it's so pervasive. So we're not going back to the childhood and saying, oh, well, I, 
I had this or I didn't have that. It really isn't dependent on circumstance. You can see it's not dependent on personality because this is all over the world. And it's, um, and it's like, and it's, and there's no blame, right? We weren't taught that separation because our parents weren't taught that separation because their parents couldn't teach them because they didn't know. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole society thing. And as we're learning more and more about the brain through the study of the brain and neuroscience, we're finding things like this are coming up. We're, we're actually uncovering them for the first time. And so there are people who are developing processes, ways to change these beliefs. And, and that's the core of, of what you do. Is there a change? Is there a way that has started to be identified or studied as to how parenting tactics can change so that parents can have a better separation or differentiation between action and worth in how they respond to their kids? There are some things on a very basic level, right? And and and, and just as simple as don't use bad girl, bad boy, mm-hmm. don't use good girl, good boy in reaction to somebody, your, your child's actions, mm. right? And rather than stand as a judge of anything, right, you know, praise or disapproval will still teach the same thing. More engage, you know, that's lovely. What do you think? Did you enjoy that? You know, hey, hey, you did, you did well on your test. Great. Did you have fun in the class? Did you learn? What did you learn? You know, so, so there, there are ways that you can get a, a, a child to really, um, feel that that's that separation between their Mm -hmm. actions and their worth. Unfortunately, because we're, we're, you know, the parents, most vast majority of parents already have that belief in themselves. It's just going to blurt out. Right? You know, they'll, they'll have some bad grades and there'll be a disappointed face. And that teaches the same thing. And so it's for parents, it's, it's probably the most essential thing is for them to address it in as much as they can in themselves first. And then what they'll be teaching their children will be very congruent. It'll be exactly what, uh, you know, there won't be any discrepancy between what they say to do and and how they're responding. Yeah. Which it's tricky to do. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Because, because part of that's going to have to start with the way we talk to ourselves differently. And when we don't achieve what we wanted to, or success doesn't look the way we thought it's, it has to stop being, well, I'm a failure or I could have done better or, you know, all of that. And, and instead replace that self-talk with something more positive. That's, that's exactly it. This is, this is where the self-acceptance comes in. And if you as a parent have this deep level of self-acceptance, you will be modeling that for your child. And, and that's going to be the greatest gift you could give them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how imposter syndrome affects the brain. Right. Okay. So what happens it's more that it starts in the brain. So there is a belief, my worth depends on what I do, my worth is conditional. And it means that any time I feel like my worth is being challenged, 
it gets flagged up in the brain. So there's a little part of the structure in the brain called the amygdala, which um, is basically looking out for danger. Right, so it, it it gets information from the senses first, and it identifies there's a tiger in the room, there's a snake in the grass. It's a very primal response to to danger, and when it detects the danger, then it triggers the whole nervous system into fight or flight or freeze, which is basically to to help you survive. Right, the brain is supposed to do that; it's designed to do that. And unfortunately, this part of the brain, the amygdala, um, has a self-programming part to it. It's not just what we tell ourselves or what other people tell us. It, it draws its own conclusions. And this is why that belief in our conditional worth is, is effectively lodged in our brain. So the work that we have to do is to change the way that our brain perceives the environment and it perceives it as what I do doesn't mean my worth is is affected or threatened. So it's taking that threat away. Um, the the brain has this model because it's trying to predict the next few minutes. You know, the brain is a predictive organ. You know, the better it model it has of the world, the more it can predict that the next few minutes you're going to stay safe. So it's a whole design if you like to keep it alive mm. keep you alive and so this is this is the this is the point that's being triggered with imposter syndrome so it's not something you can talk yourself out of so there are some wonderful mindset techniques there are you know affirmations and things like that and they really don't work with imposter syndrome because we're talking about this belief that is is represented is is held in the brain in the amygdala so it, it needs that it does need quite deep work to just shift that and change that perspective so with that the deep work and the effective interventions for imposter syndrome is it really something that a person needs a third party to help them with or is it something that people can start doing some things personally to be able to start seeing some change in that. Yeah. So there's, there's two things. I mean, if you're going to get rid of imposter syndrome, eliminate it, then it does need that one-to-one -one work, that deep work, um, in, in order to, to shift it, but you can manage imposter syndrome. So I've got a little course that helps people manage imposter syndrome and it's a, you know, it's a do-it-yourself course. And it, it does focus on first calming the nervous system, right? Mm. So ways to get calm. So the, the calmer you are, the less your brain detects a threat. So, you know, you, you, if you're, you're, you're not reactive, if you like, and the, the less reactive you are, the more you can stay in the, in the, in a situation where you, you can be calmer and in control of things. So it starts with getting calm. And then there are you know, uh, techniques that you can do to just gradually shift those behaviors of perfectionism, et cetera, that we were talking about earlier. So as someone is working through overcoming imposter syndrome and they're mm -hmm. divorcing their actions being what it leads to their self-worth, then ultimately do you replace 
what their self-worth is found in? And if so, what is that being replaced by? That's a lovely question. It's it's actually more of a, a letting go of the idea that mm. your worth is dependent on anything. Because your worth as a human being, you know, when you were born, right, the moment you were born, you were an absolute miracle. Right? You you were you had all this potential and you know the you know you'd not made any mistakes, you'd not, you know, all of that, right? That worth of a of a little child, absolutely precious, mm-hmm. that never goes away. That never cha- changes. And so when we take away this this judgment or this assessment that our our worth depends on something, then it leads to freedom. Right? It leads to a sense that, well, I can go out and try something, and you know what? If I fail, then I've learned something. Right? But that comes up as a a genuine thought, not as a little mantra that says, okay, I failed, <laughs> fill in the blank, and and but I've learned something. You know, there's kind of a gritting your teeth and pushing your way through it and saying, but there was a positive. No, it it, it literally you accept yourself. You don't judge yourself if you fail. And, you know, you don't, um, you don't feel superior if you succeed, mm. right? You enjoy your success, but you don't, you, don't, you know, because that sense of feeling superior or inferior, that's actually both sides of the same coin that your worth depends on what you do. So when you let it go, then you don't feel that. So you you feel a very deep connection, if you like, an inner pride of things that you've managed to achieve. And and that taps into this sense of mastery that people have. You know, people do something, stretch a little, and then, you know, if, if it goes well, well, maybe they'll I'll see how far I can go next time. I'll see how far I can go next time. So it it changes the way that you work. It changes the way that you relate to other people. Hmm. Can you share with us a story or a couple of stories of someone that you have worked with and kind of what their imposter syndrome was doing to them, how it was holding them back in life beforehand, and then how it looked like for them to work through it and what life was like for them on the other side. Yeah. So there, there are, there are so many different ways that imposter syndrome shows up. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll just pick, um, uh, I'll just pick, uh, let me see. So Daniel, right. Uh, he's, uh, um, he's in my book. He's, uh, um, a lawyer. Uh, an attorney and uh, he started off early in his career and he did really really well he got featured in the local newspaper and he got invited to the big city to join a very prestigious law firm but when he got there he started to experience imposter syndrome the first thing he did was he looked around at his colleagues and they were all second and third generation lawyers and barristers. They'd have very expensive private education, been to prestigious universities. And he came from a very poor family. He came from, he, he went through the local state education. He went to this local university. And so he didn't feel like he belonged. So that was really the, the start of it. 
So then he, he decided that he really couldn't share this with anyone. So the secrecy part is, is also he couldn't, he couldn't talk to anyone about, about this. He felt very isolated and he felt like it was just him, right? It was, it was, and he thought it must be me. It must be my personality. And he then decided that he would try and prepare. This is the over-preparing. So he would work hard and hard and hard enough. He, he developed this perfectionism and he would work very, very long hours in order to feel like he'd done enough work in order to prove to himself that he was good enough. Now, bear in mind, his boss and his colleagues thought he was brilliant, right? They, they, he, he was not failing in his work at all, but every day he came to work um, feeling like at any moment they were going to ask him to leave. Hmm. Sorry, we made a mistake hiring you. Hmm. And uh, it was very stressful. And in the end, he ended up leaving. He, he quit his career. He quit the whole of the, the, the legal career. And um, he came back to it, yeah, 15 years later as a legal assistant. And then he was working as a, um, uh, you know, a one-man band law firm. So the, 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 really there was this massive regret mm. that he had, but he still felt like he had failed. Now, mm. that situation is kind of like the extreme version of it. Um, and, um, many of my clients, it, it, they experience kind of like a smaller version of it. You know, they have that fear that they're going to get found out and fired. They have that sense that they don't belong. And so when we've worked through that, then the, the, the situation looks very, very different for them. It means that they, they feel like they belong. They feel, they feel a strength. Um, they feel like they can do what's being asked of them and also hold boundaries because a lot of times, mm. you know, people don't want to ask for help because they feel like that's a failure. They don't want to, um, uh, uh, they, they have problems saying no. Yeah. They don't, they don't want, they, they don't want to say no because that's almost like they're admitting it's failure as well. So they, they, they really work themselves way too hard and that can lead to burnout. So mm. the opposite of that then is typical experiences, which is they feel calm. They feel relaxed. They, um, they don't react. So, um, you know, if somebody comes to them, so here's, here's a great example. Um, one of the, the, my clients was a manager and he had this one team member who used to come in and she, she'd like saved up all, all of her stress and anxiety. And then she'd kind of explode in his office. And it used to, well, it used to really freak him out, right? He didn't know what to do with it. He felt, like he felt guilty about it. He'd lie awake at night worrying about it. What can I do? For, right. You know, this is, it was very stressful for him to work with her. So after uh, he and I had worked together, then uh, she came in and did it again, right? Because this was her pattern, right? She'd, she'd build everything up and then come and explode. And um, his reaction was completely different, right? So he his nervous system didn't go into panic, 
right? He felt he stayed calm, which meant he could listen to her, right? Without, with, without making it about him. He wasn't taking it personally. So he could listen to her. And then after she left, he made a couple of phone calls to sort out her problems. Mm. And then he just got on with his day, really calm. So, you know, an event that would have caused him two or three days of stress and anxiety, he just, he just breezed through and it didn't, didn't affect him. And, and the difference then is that when he went home, he wasn't preoccupied with his work. He wasn't preoccupied with that worry. Um, he could be present for his family. He could enjoy being with them. And so there, there's a ripple effect then that happens as, um, people are, are calmer and they're not so wrapped up in the stress because they're not feeling that stress because it's not personal, because it's not about their worth. Right. As, as we close, what are some things that you would encourage the listeners with if they realize that they are dealing with imposter syndrome and they're wanting to begin to make a change, where would you recommend they start? Okay, so I think there are there are three things that are that are really important to understand at first. The first is that it's not you, right? This isn't your personality, and it's not just you. This affects an awful lot of people, right? So it's not you, and you're not alone, right? It's not just you, and there is something that you can do about it. And so I think when you when you understand that, even knowing that, you know, there's a possibility of change, it means that your your nervous system can start to, to relax. Okay, you know, it's not going to sweep me away. There's something we can do about it. I think then the major, apart from keeping it a secret, the major behavior is, is people comparing themselves. Now we compare ourselves to other people. It's very natural. It's part of our knowing our place in society. Um, and it, as I said, it tends to be a, a judgment in comparing. So when we compare, our brains are looking for the differences, right? This is the way, again, the survival thing, the, the looking out for danger. We're looking out for differences. So rather than trying to stop yourself comparing, which is not going to happen. Anytime you notice yourself comparing yourself to someone else, stop and say, okay, I'm going to look for similarities instead. And when you look for similarities between you and the other people, then the more you look, you know, make a list, the more you'll find, and then you'll feel more included. You'll feel more like you belong and just that practice can really help lower the stress that the imposter syndrome, isolation and self-doubt creates. I really like that idea. I have not yet heard that one. And that one is fantastic. Stop looking for the differences and look for the similarities. Fantastic. Well, you have a book. We will... Uh, note it or link to it in the show notes, but it is called Unmasked and this or Unmasking, The Coach's Guide to Imposter Syndrome. So this book is primarily for people who may be working with others who are in, who are in more high level 
jobs or performance-based roles and helping them overcome imposter syndrome. Is that right? This is for people who are uh, working in any kind of coaching role uh, or a counseling role, a mentoring role. Uh, You can be a a careers advisor in a school, you know, any, anywhere where you're, you're, you're working with people in an advisory role. And, you know, it's designed to help bring a few of these perspectives in that are the the easy ones to pick up. So it's not teaching people how to do the deep work, hmm. but it's a, giving them the the ability to to help. So when somebody comes and says, "I have imposter syndrome," hmm. you know, yeah, what do you do with that as a coach? Well, that's what the book's for. Yeah. So could this also be useful for parents to just be able to better work with their kids on a day to day basis? It could be helpful, yes. They'll have to do a little translation in their heads as it applies to them. But I've seen people apply it to themselves equally as well. I mean, it's it's got the it's got the foundation that we've talked about here. You know, why people develop conditional worth, what that looks like, how it shows up, and that perspective is very, very helpful in in shifting this belief about your your worth being dependent on what you do. Absolutely. Well, we will link to that in the show notes as well as to your website, Complete Success. And people can go there. You even have a quiz that people can take where they can figure out where they are in dealing with imposter syndrome and look at some of the other items that you have available as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Halliday. And I look forward to talking with you again at some point about other, other areas imposter syndrome may be affecting us. That's fabulous. Thank you, Kimberly. This has been great to talk to you. So how does understanding and overcoming imposter syndrome help us to work on ourselves? How does it help us become more physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually attractive? Well, I believe that many of us are constantly just running on this hamster wheel of trying to find our self-worth and we're doing it by continuing to try and lose more weight, do more things, make more money. And we're kind of on that wheel of imposter syndrome because we're relating our actions to our worth. And so if we really want to be the healthiest and most attractive that we can be in all of the areas of our pies, of our physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual attraction, then realizing that our worth is not in what we do is kind of this foundational and overarching concept that can lead us to really understand that who we are is good. We are fearlessly and wonderfully made and we don't have to do anything to earn love or worth or value. And then when we work on ourselves, all of it is coming from a place of positive feelings about ourselves and not from places of of punishment. I'm doing this because I'm not good enough. And that's actually going to fuel you to be able to want to do better things for yourself, to want to implement healthier habits, and for those things to actually stick. My favorite key takeaway from this episode today is that imposter syndrome can look like perfectionism, comparison, overworking, over-preparing, deflecting praise. She talked about all of those things, but really the only way to fully be healed, so to say, or to overcome imposter syndrome is to realize that you have worth because you exist, not because of what you've done, not because of what's happened to you, not because of what you can achieve, but because you are you. You are fully loved 
just as you are. And when I look at the research behind self-worth, which I've done a lot of in my PhD program, we see that there are key components of self-worth. And one of those, according to the secular research, is God's love. And this just mimics everything that we talked about here. Whether you're a Christian or not, we can't divorce ourselves or separate ourselves from the fact, the research-based fact, that the feeling of God's love, realizing that you are loved by someone and something greater than yourself, and you don't have to do anything to earn that love, is a component, a contingency, as the research would call it, of self-worth. And that's the baseline of what imposter syndrome, the opposite of imposter syndrome is. Overcoming imposter syndrome looks like realizing that you are loved and you are loved by God. That's my key takeaway. Another bonus one for you. I love what she said. Stop comparing yourself by looking at the differences. Compare yourself by looking at the similarities. That is a great way to reframe your mind, to rewire those neural pathways that your thoughts are going on in your brain that are going to make you feel worse, to ultimately rewiring to something that is going to help you see that you don't have to be jealous of others. You don't have to compare yourself in a negative way to others, but you actually have more in common with the people that you think are better than you, or maybe even more in common with the people that you have more pride or too much pride and you're looking at as being inferior than you. You have more similarities But guess what? All of you are loved and you don't have to work for any of it because God loves you. See you next week. Stay strong.